um, recording then. How are you going? Uh, greetings from greetings. <laughs> what, 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 what is it, week 50 now? It's just, I'm literally losing track of time being in here for so long. Yeah, it's a bit, like, a bit like that. It does feel um, like the never ending story. Yeah, for all I know, we just recorded yesterday. We're doing this again. <laughs> Definitely. I know, I know. Um, so we've got another Aussie double feature. Um, what are we looking at today? We're looking at two... Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to be facetious with this one. Two proper classic movies. We're looking proper at Strictly Ballroom mm. and Picnic at Hanging Rock. Exactly, exactly. Um, and... Picnic at Hanging Rock was, what year was that? Uh, I, I know that we usually do the early one, uh, the earlier one first. You but I, really, I really do want to get that out of the way. <laughs> out of the way? Oh, okay. Interesting. Interesting. Um, no, 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 it's not like, admittedly, we've talked about Baz Luhrmann on the show before. Yeah. We know what to expect, or at the very least, I thought I did uh -huh. and I, I, I went into this with like a very clear like idea of what my reaction was going to be I thought it was going to be that I would like it because it's like half as long as all of us over <laughs> <But, laughs> that's great <laughs> but but because this is where he started mm. And and I've seen like pretty much everything else he's made since. It make me retroactively hate his other movies more. Wow, yeah, okay. Because it, it it get me feeling like why can't they all be this good? And I was half right. Okay, okay. Well, we'll just, uh, I, we'll just I'll just quickly point out. So the reason that we picked these two, the connection between them, is that. I would consider both of these films to be their respective directors kind of launching pads for the rest of their career. So these were their sort of, I think this might've been Baz Luhrmann's first film, Strictly Ballroom, and Peter Weir might have made some other stuff beforehand, but oh, yeah. definitely oh, okay. what put him on the map in terms of um, cinema. Are you there? Oh no. Yeah. I just, um, I just, yeah, I just yeah. <laughs> no, let's not. Oh no! Let's not freak out. Hopefully. Okay. Oh no! Please no! We're just getting started with this. Can you please tell me you hear me? I can hear you. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Please. I can hear you. Yes, I can hear you. Okay, cool. All right. Okay. Push on. Push on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, so Strictly Ballroom. Yes, give me your I, thoughts. So I was half right in this, in okay. that, well, I honestly don't hate his other movies more than I already did, which, A, because that's almost impossible at this stage, <laughs> but also because this is honestly what I secretly hoped this movie would be. And it kind of goes back to my usual auteur way of approaching these movies like you know the directors and the writers vision as it were mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i and in the process of that i've noticed that there are certain films that seem to like sum up everything about a director like with um guillermo del toro it's the shape of water that's basically his entire thing okay um with christopher nolan i 
Can you hear me still? Yep. Um, uh, with Christopher Nolan, I'd argue it's inception in regards to like his views on um, reality, fiction, lies, truth, and all of that. And for Baz Luhrmann, this is definitely his like centerpiece as a film because it honestly sums up his entire MO as a filmmaker. And uh, admittedly, it doesn't make me hate his other movies any less, but I have gained a modicum of respect for them and him, honestly, as a filmmaker, because, well, from what I can tell of his MO, just from Strictly Ballroom and how it kind of echoes through the rest of his films, mm. I kind of respect him for the same reason I respect guys like Steven Soderbergh, because it, the whole thing with Strictly Ballroom, at its core, is about, well, a dancer who does his own steps and focuses a lot more on engaging with the audience around him than with the rather rigid restrictions of the inner circle, as it were, with the actual people judging the contests and everything. Okay. Which is Baz Luhrmann to a T. Yeah. Like, he has never shown that... He has never really shown from what I can tell, that much of a shit when it comes to appeasing the critics, yeah, which sure. shows in certain respects, admittedly. But as far as, like, the, the big, bombastic, insanely theatrical, over-theatrical, I'd argue, mm. crowd-pleaser, this yeah. is him at his most concentrated. And I don't, I don't know if it is because of the shorter running time or if it's because the story is, like, that much more simple i guess it's a romantic comedy to do with dancing and the freedom of it all or maybe it's because in in um contrast to stuff like australia i did notice some cultural commentary going on yeah that wasn't completely ballsed up by the delivery no but uh, overall i have to admit i've actually found a better Sloman movie that i like <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you said that, and I and I figured you probably. I'm I, I'm I'm genuinely kind of shocked about that. Really. <laughs> I, I thought you would be. I did. I did. It's it's interesting to hear it, um, you talk about it this way and to talk about Baz Luhrmann because, to be perfectly honest, I saw this film as a teenager in the '90s and have been a, obsessed with it ever since. Had the soundtrack, and I probably watched it fifty odd times. But I didn't actually know it was a Baz Luhrmann film until, like, not that long ago. So I'd never looked into who made it or anything like that. And so after Moulin Rouge and I, you know, went through all that kind of stuff, I didn't make the connection until maybe 10 years or so ago that it was a Baz Luhrmann film. And I, at first I was like, what? No way. And then I was like, oh, well, yeah, okay. I sort of... I sort of see that now um, and you're right, there is, there is a lot of him in it and a, and a much more toned down version. It, it feels like he got his rungs on the board and went, all right, cool, well, I'm just going to run with this now and take it to the nth degree. Um, but I, and I think that that's maybe unfortunate because the subtlety that comes through in in some parts of Strictly Ballroom, and it's obviously not a subtle film, but there are some beautiful subtleties to it, and I and I think that's missing from from 
most of Oh, no. No, 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 no. <laughs> Say again, sorry. Yeah, that is... Um, I was about to say, I totally agree with you on that one. Yeah. That actually does make a lot of sense because, like, especially in regards to, like, the cultural commentary I mentioned before with um, the relationship between the main two um, and the sort of Spanish background of the romantic interest and how almost embarrassingly white the whole, <laughs> um, like, dance committee basically is. Yeah. <laughs> and I also noticed... Um, how to put it, it's a little bizarre to see two officials in charge of this very flamboyant, you know, dancing competition call each other, um, what, what was it? Um, he called, um, I think it was like Bill Hunter. Yes. His character called someone yes. else a fag. And I'm yes. like, you're clearly in the wrong <laughs> industry if you've got a problem with that, but... <laughs> I know, I know. It's 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 just classic, and it's and and I guess, you know. And compare and. and Sorry, go on. Um, it, it's just and compare that to Australia, where mm. hello. Yeah, I'm here. Can you still hear me? Yes. Hello? Uh, all right, okay. Just, uh, I, I think there's a slight delay in the... Um, yeah, I feel like, like it there is. Me yeah. hearing you, you hearing me. But we'll soldier through as best yes. we can. Yes. <laughs> uh, all right, so... Uh, and So, like, compare all the stuff that, like, all the little touches that worked with, um, with this movie and compare that to stuff like Australia, mm. where the racial politics on display are eye-watering. Yeah. and how bad they are whereas with this it actually feels like it almost makes me want to re-examine that because like it, right. like all the stuff that's being discussed here in terms of just you know the freedom the liberation of you know almost literally dancing to the beat of your own drum yeah there's I something like quite invigorating about it yeah, like i can i do not have the grace i used to have back in high school where i, where I could walk without stumbling <laughs> but it, there is something like it kind of makes you want to get up and dance because the energy it is just that electric. No, I know, and we did. My sisters used to make up dances to the songs on the soundtrack. We used to put the CD on, and they would they would make up these <laughs> little ballroom dance stuff to them. It is, and it's and that, and that freeingness that you talked about. You know, her 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 life kind of motto: "A life lived in fear is a life half lived." Is the first time I sort of heard something like that before, and it was really um, impactful on me. Uh, I've always kind of carried that around too. And the great thing about the cultural clash in this film, as opposed to perhaps some of his others that, you know, I don't know about the other films, but definitely in Australia, is that it's a little bit of a schooling um, from the minority side to the pretty um, clueless white guy <laughs> who comes in and pretends that he knows how to do a traditional Spanish dance, the Paso Doble, and they just, you know, laugh at him and 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 show him the soul that he's missing in these you know pre 
prescribed dance steps that they have to kind of um, adhere to. And the way that he's been taught to dance his whole life was they, you know, they're kind of virtually saying there's no soul in what you're doing. And they, they show him, you know, that. And, and, and I think that's, for me, that's the most beautiful part of the film, that scene when they're at the back and the guys are, are drinking out, out of their Vegemite glasses and, and playing the flamenco guitar. And, and, and That she- is such an Aussie thing. Yeah, yeah. I honestly couldn't get over that. It's just yeah. like what, literally no other country. Like regardless <laughs> of the fact that Vegemite is spelled elsewhere, yeah. <laughs> no one else would think of that. I know. And it's just so beautiful that that coming together of cultures and the you know, it feels like it's on the back of the train line in Tempe or something and, and the, the train goes past and they're, they're dancing and I just, that, that scene moves me every single time. And the grandma, she can't even speak English and so she's translating and it's just, it, it just sums up to me what's beautiful about Australian culture, about how the, the, the mishmash of cultures we have here, I hate using the word multicultural, but it's true. Like, you know, that's what's, that's what gives Australia so much more. It, it, it's, I don't know, it's, it's just such a beautiful scene and I, and I, and I love this film for, for what it says about that. And I love... I, I do totally get that. And honestly, in regards to the multiculturalism in this, there's also how, like, the, uh, the idea of, you know, you know, dancing your own steps and, mm. you know, embracing the cultures around you is shown as, what well, well, basically living authentically, being yeah. true. Whereas all of the whitest fuck people, like, around that inner circle of the dance committee, all of them are fake, like, from their tan to their <laughs> toupees to their to their relationships with each other, to yeah. the fact that um, Barry Otto, yeah. like his whole character in that, like he is, man, such a tragic character in that. And the fact yeah. that like everyone around him is lying to each other about what happened to him yeah. just makes that ending feel that much more righteous, oh. especially with um, Bill Hunter's two pages going... Like all those viral... Um, photos of Donald Trump outside. It's like that kind of effect to it. It's like the you know the emperor has no hair. That exactly. kind of thing. Yes, exactly. And it is. It's a beautiful scene at the end, and everyone comes out onto the floor and starts dancing together. And it it, it moves me every time. I, this is one of those films that I can honestly just watch over and over and over, and still laugh, and still cry, and still just feel good it's one of those movies that just always makes me feel good yeah and 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 the thing is like i've said that this is basically like quintessential baz luhrmann Mm. but at the same time this is him like much more muted than he would become later on like there's definite kitsch to be found basically everywhere everyone is at an 11 when they're talking to each other (laughs) like the amount of like hysterics just going on between everything, especially with um, oh god, uh, just the fact that um Sonia Kruger is in this movie, <laughs> like like retroactively like makes this even funnier to sit through, because seeing her as part of that white majority, knowing the stuff that she said more recently, 
Yes. Well, the irony is delicious on that one. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there's also like the actual like composition of the film itself. The fact that like it has a lot of the same like you know very theatrical like you know you know stage light and the curtains like all of that you know stick, stays true to pretty much everything else he's done. Mm. But there there isn't. It doesn't feel like he's overloading the frame to get that across because. Like, especially with films like um, Moulin Rouge, like, everything is happening at every single second. It's like he's somehow injecting more time into time just so there's more <laughs> shit happening on screen. It's kind of insane. And as someone who admittedly likes indulging in a bit of sensory overload every now and then, even I'm looking at this guy like, it's bad when you're making the ADHD kids think that you need to calm down a bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but with this, because it is, like, admittedly, a little more lucid than the movies he would make later on, it's actually a lot easier to appreciate what's actually happening. Yeah, you don't feel, like, completely bamboozled by everything that's going on. I mean, I watched The Greatest Showman on Earth and I just, I walked away from that feeling like I'd been in a theme park eating too much cotton candy and swung around in some ride for two hours. I was like, what just happened to me? <laughs> well, that's the effect you'll have when you have seven editors making your movie. <laughs> I'm not even kidding about that. Wow, wow. So, so, just, so just, yeah, <laughs> there's a reason that one turned out as weird as it did. Classic. Um, all right, well, I think that pretty much kind of sums it up. I'd 100% recommend if you've never seen Strictly Ballroom um, and you didn't know uh, that it was a Baz Luhrmann film, like I didn't, or even if you did, check it out because it's, um, it's a great piece of Australiana. I really, really recommend it. And, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm as gung-ho about <laughs> the recommendation because, like, like, I do admit I did like this movie, but because there is so much, like, quintessentially, you know, Baz in this, I can imagine the people who, like, really objected to stuff like Australia, Moulin Rouge, or Romeo plus Juliet will probably have, like, similar issues with this. But if it means anything, like, Baz Luhrmann has been on my shit list for years. I've associated him with, like, the worst experiences I've had going to the cinema <laughs> for as long as I've been going to the cinema. Like, no joke. Yeah. But... After watching this, after getting a bit more of a feeling for like what the guy aims for and what the guy wants as engagement, I'm not going to lie. I actually am considering re-watching Romeo Post Juliet because I feel I might have a little more chance of liking it this time around. Wow. That well, is something I never thought I'd say, quite frankly. But well, well yeah, I if that's it, the rest of the film then, because that is, that is very interesting. So, yeah. Cool. On that basis, might be worth checking out, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, Picnic at Hanging Rock. <laughs> Hope you don't like satisfying conclusions. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to hold back on that. Although I have to admit, that is something that I keep coming across whenever I see other people talking about the movie. Yeah. Where they feel like because there is no real like conclusion to the mystery, like... What did happen to these girls? Where are they? Are they anywhere at all anymore? Mm. Like, um, they just and, into thin air. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And see, like, the lead up to 
you know, no resolution is just a waste of time. Mm. And I could definitely get that because there, that is a, you know, prevailing, you know, approach when it comes to most moviegoers. Like, people go to the movies for the same reason they're not experiencing reality for the same period of time. Mm-hmm. They want, you know, pretty little bows wrapped around these story packages. And it's being like, oh, okay, this is what this is. Th- you know, this leads to this. And it generally has a lot more direction than real life does. Mm-hmm. Even considering what real life's, you know, constitutes of nowadays. But... I know. It's... Um... I would um, put this in a category of like strict art film. Like this isn't the yeah. sort of thing you just watch. No, it's something definitely. you experience. It's something where you just let all the images and the words and the sounds just wash over you and you just feel what's going on. Yeah. And in that regard, like not only is this like a really, really fucking good movie, it's a serious trailblazer because up until this point, like no one would have suspected this from our neck of the woods. Like this sort of impressionistic, yeah. basically like throwing all types of art into your face and you're meant to just, you know, take hold of it and read what you can into it. Yeah. Like this kind of stuff really wasn't done over here. Like no, up until that point, it was mostly just like, you had the exploitation stuff, you had the, you know, the proto-Western Ned Kelly fetishism, and mm-hmm. you just had, you know, bare basic dramas. That, right. Like, there really wasn't anything like this. No. Well, at least anything like this that got this much of a push internationally. No. Until this happened. Yeah, yeah. And um, also, I think what kind of potentially helped... Um, with that, I guess, with its kind of cult um, following and its cult um, status these days is that for sure from a cinema perspective, like on kind of charted territory for Australian cinema. And I would argue that it it never really took off in Australian cinema. I haven't seen a lot of films that kind of um, follow that sort of... um, I have actually but admittedly not in australia but i can think of one filmmaker who very prominently like regardless of the nepotism surrounding her name owes her entire career aesthetic to this movie right sophia coppola the director of um lost in translation yeah no but this film is like re like eerily reminiscent of her own debut, The Virgin Suicides with Kirsten oh, Dunst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, I meant, I meant, I meant, ultimately that, the same. Yeah, yeah, no, I meant that Australian films, like, I would argue that there hasn't been many Australian films that it's not like he started a trend here by making that film. It definitely didn't take off here, that sort of style of filmmaking. But there was a real, um, so there was a lot of uh, speculation as to whether or not this was a true story for a really long time. So because it was based on this book that this woman wrote and she never really um, said whether or not she had based it on a like some, an actual happening or whether she'd just kind of invented the whole thing. But it, the way she'd written it, it sounded like um, kind of like a 
um, like like an early um, what do we call them now? The true crime type thing, like one of the original yeah, kind of true crime, which is the most Aussie thing in the world. Quite yeah. Frankly. yeah, and then. But then it's not true. She's just kind of made it up. I think she based it on a couple of, like, um, disappearances and stuff. But she basically just made the whole thing up. But that book so had this cult following and then the film. And so he, he, he had this um, a bit of momentum behind it already. And, and so it became quite um, popular overseas as well. Um, and the speculation continued for a really long time as to whether or not these um, girls had actually walked up into the rock and disappeared. But I will go back to your first point that you made um, in that this is not a movie you would just sit down and watch. And that's really interesting because it's such an iconic piece of Australian cinema. And I know people who are really into it, really, really love it, and they will, like, rave about it. Um, but watching it, what, 45 years after its making? Um, oh, yeah. Uh, I was like, wow, if, if, if we hadn't been watching this for the, the podcast, uh, I would have watched 10 minutes of it and been like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> and probably switched it off, even though it's, you know, got such a cult following and it is, you know, um, in really a, a, an Australian classic. But I am glad that I watched it because it certainly is... Um, an interesting and beautiful uh, piece of cinema, but I find it difficult to reconcile this with later films he's made. Like, I'm kind of... Like Gallipoli? Well, Gallipoli, I can kind of see some of the... a little bit, like I can... Maybe just because they're both Australian, but later on, I mean, like... um, you know, like Dead Poet Society and... Um, the Truman Show. The Truman Show and stuff like that. Like, it's almost like it's really the same filmmaker. And I'm like, I'm not suggesting that people need to make the same films their whole lives or direct the same way. But I literally don't think I could watch The Truman Show and that and, and find anything kind of <laughs> to pull out of it that would indicate to me what, that they were made what, by the same what's person. It, what's, it, what's the season thing? What was this? Um, admittedly, my understanding of auteur theory hasn't stretched far enough for me to be able to contextualize Peter Weir as I have so many other directors. But as far as like this film's place as like proper like vanguard groundbreaking stuff, I don't necessarily mean in terms of the actual you know genre of the thing or even like the mood it's set. I mean more in terms of this was like one of the first real punches of diversification when it came to our cinema scene. And that's basically the one thing that holds like the Australian new wave together. Like if you look at like a bunch of films from it, including a couple that we've covered like Mad Max, you really wouldn't think that there's a lot connecting them, except for the fact that they really pushed the boat out there in terms of presentation, in terms of aesthetics, in terms of production values, in terms of, what we in this little, you know, prison nation are capable of coming up with on our own, essentially. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, um, I guess I just mean that for me, as somebody who doesn't even really know what you're talking about in terms of that theory, <laughs> and stuff like that, and I'm just a, you know, I'm just a, like I've always kind of maintained, I just like movies, 
and I've never really tried to look into it so far. I mean, take something like like the Truman Show or Green Card. I mean, these are essentially just romantic comedies, and then you and then I can look at this, and I'm like, it just it just it almost feels like there's two two different filmmakers. I just I, I'm I struggle to. Whereas with Baz Luhrmann, I mean, it's like he has his fucking DNA all over that shit. Oh, oh yeah, there's no mistaking Baz Luhrmann for anyone else. Yeah, and and everything he makes has his you know mark on it. And I'm not saying that Peter Weir's mark is not on those other films. It's just it feels like this is what it feels like to me. It feels like Picnic at Hanging Rock was like um, a university um, PhD style art house something thing that he had to get out of his system, and then and then he got on with the rest. Of the <laughs> I I totally get what you mean. What you just said there is basically the crux of why the mainstream doesn't like art movies. I totally get that. Oh, and I feel bad I, now saying that because there's nothing. I love art house films, and I and I think and art for art's sake is important. And I think that people should be able to express themselves. It just seems weird that he kind of just abandoned that afterwards and then went like, I mean, you can't get more mainstream than some of the stuff that he's done recently. I mean, Master and Commander and whatever. It's like hectically just blockbuster. Admittedly, and if I did take the time to obsess over all of his movies as I have for quite a few American directors, I'm willing to bet that I could pull something out of my navel to bring bring everything together. I think if anybody could, you could. (laughs) I only have like bits and pieces I can work with. And quite frankly, my, like, fascination with this movie really doesn't have anything to do with the names attached to it, although I will admit, post-coitus Jackie Weaver was not something I was expecting to see ever, (laughs) but that happened. I know, when I saw her name come up in the credits, I was like, I wonder if I'll recognise... Oh, okay, hi. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's this, and, like, my fascination with this is... Honestly, the same kind of thinking that, again, turns off most mainstream moviegoers in terms of, like, how people talk about art movies, because this really made me want to take a deep dive into just what it's presenting, because I honestly love films like this that sort of, like, combine all sorts of different varieties of art and just puts them together into, like, this collage. Mm. Like, you've got the pan flute music, you've Mm. got the... You've got the recitations of like Edgar Allan Poe and William Shakespeare fighting around. You've got the absolutely beautiful cinematography. You've got the, you've got the honestly really beautiful women that are being captured. And the art, the comparison between them and the, and the, um, the girls and the, the art, the, the bloody, sorry. The, the teacher, she's looking through an art book, you know, while they're out on the picnic and, and she says, oh, I, I see now she's one of Rembrandt's angels or something like that. I can't remember who the artist was, but there's that um, Renaissance kind of art thing in it as well. Sorry, and, and And admittedly, a lot of this um, could possibly be a bit of um, cultural commentary as well in regards to, well, how to put it, the reason why, like, multiculturalism, in my view, 
is such a necessary thing in Australian culture is because without it, there is no culture in Australian <laughs> culture. Like a lot of what makes us us is informed by the environment we're in and the literal boatloads of people that have been brought here alongside us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as far as like pairing up like this very prim and proper finishing school against mm -hmm. like the sheer unknowable that is nature, that is this place that they've landed in, mm -hmm. it's certainly starting to be read into that. However, that was almost a footnote compared to the thing that I really gripped onto with this. Mm. And it's going back to what I said um, regarding like Sofia Coppola and the Virgin Suicides. Mm. What this film is, at its core, is about, and this might be the single ponciest phrase I've ever uttered yet on this podcast, the divine feminine. Yeah, no, I can see that. For sure. I think uh, that's definitely uh, what he was going for. And that's what I meant about when, when, when the, you know, the bit I'm talking about the French teacher and she's looking in the book and she says, now I know where I saw you before. And those artists, uh, that's what they very much were exploring in, in, in about the divine feminine. And, uh, and, and yeah, and that's the thing. And that is honestly part of the reason why, while I do acknowledge that there's something about the 70 sheen on this thing that makes all of the, um, all the girls at the school look gorgeous mm. just saying mm. there is something a little like i i'm a little reluctant to even say that much because both that and that scene uh, you know about um, Rem one of rembrandt's angels mm. Mm. both of those are born from basically the weirdest part about this whole thing it's all it's a film all about the seeming unknowable beauty that is the female in all its forms in its purest form shown here mm -hmm. but it's all through the gaze of men mm. and not just to do with the like with the filmmakers predominantly being men i mean i mean in regards yeah. to the two supporting actors that are in this yeah how who, weird that, that old mate goes from what's his name goes from being a bit creepy in this movie to being seriously creepy down the track yeah, it's just, and that is, again, part of why I connected this with stuff like The Virgin Suicides, because yeah. both of them show, like, this almost hilarious misunderstanding between the seemingly unknowable woman and the men desperately trying to figure them out as if they're some alien species. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it, it, and it was, it was almost as though, um, you know, and I'm, I'm grasping at my very um, thin uh, understanding of uh, Greek and Roman mythology, but it was almost as though he was trying to kind of um, draw from that idea that they'd almost poisoned his mind, that young guy just by that very small glimpse he saw of them. He got too close. Yeah, yeah. And he, he kind of was like, um, you know, brainwashed in a way and ended up almost dying going up, sort of looking for these nymphs, I guess, that he never even met, just glimpsed for a moment. And then all of a sudden he's kind of... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, hypnotised into sort of following them up into the ridge and, 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 and going looking for them. 
like it was that real, you know, that Greek mythology kind of thing. That Such was, as the allure of the maiden yeah. form woman. Yeah, 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 and, exactly. And admittedly, I get how condescending all of this might sound coming from me, the whitest of white dudes in this room. But <laughs> at the same time, <laughs> um, the, the, the fact that like there is so much like art aesthetic, like layered art mm -hmm. aesthetics on this mm -hmm. actually ties into that because one of like the main things when it came to especially like Renaissance art was the notion of basically taking like the divine form, like gods, demons, mm -hmm. angels, numerous naked women, and basically turning them into like their own mythology, giving them a life beyond life. And that's basically like, as far as my own headcanon, what happened to those girls. They passed from the physical realm and through both events within the film and the actual film's cultural impact since transcended and became legend, basically. They became the divine feminine. Okay, well, this is really interesting because I came into this podcast thinking I wasn't going to have much to say about Picnic and Hanging Rock. I, I didn't think there'd be very much to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Never underestimate my ability to pull things like sausages oh, out of I my would... own rectum. <laughs> I would never underestimate that, but I'm very impressed and I'm, <laughs> finding, it, I'm finding it a really interesting conversation and I, I, you're, I agree with you and I now kind of see that because on first glance, I kind of just went, oh yeah, cute film kind of thing, interesting, arty, like, but yeah, you're right, that's, um, I didn't even, yeah, notice that, it's, that's, that's really interesting and, and, I, and I love that kind of thing. Um, I love when a film has more to it than, than the surface would potentially, you know, have you believe. Yeah, it's, just, it's like you were saying earlier in regards to the need for art for the sake of art, which along with, you know, the absence of that meaning that I'd have pretty much nothing to do with my day, <laughs> even before the lockdown. But there's also how like art has, a you know, a transformative ability as far as transforming people's perspectives. Yeah. And this is where like the film gets like really interesting for me because, and again, I'm gonna keep referring back to the Virgin Suicides because I swear that those two are genetically linked in some way. Mm. They, the way that like the disappearance and the mystery surrounding the women in, in both films, it, they basically boiled down to this almost tragic leaning in as far as the reason why any of this is happening is because both, you know, from the opposite sex and even those within the same sex, there's a criminal lack of understanding of female, you know, archetypes, female sexuality, like the amount of suppressed female sexuality in this thing, it's mm. kind of terrifying in its own way because it feels like a powder keg about to go off. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, and interesting for that time. And it's, it's, it's something you always kind of think that everyone was completely prudish and potentially unaware of their own sexuality but you can see that these girls and definitely not in an overt or gaudy way but they were certainly um two of them had to be together I i'm just going to say that there is no way 
that there was no lesbianism going on in that school. Oh, I'm putting oh, my foot down. This there's no way 100%. that that was not happening. Hundred percent. But that aside, I mean, just the um, the way that they carried themselves, it was it was almost as though there was a um, an intrinsic deep self understanding of their own kind of sensuality. I will I will say. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really, that is part of the on-the-surface, like, visual appeal of the whole thing, because th th there's something, like, how to put it? People in the 70s look like people from no other decade. No, there's something very specific. Yeah. There's something... Definitely there's just Australian. something about the way the sun reflects off these people. <laughs> and it's just like, you look at them, and it's immediately like, oh, okay, this was definitely of that era. That's true. That's true. Very funny. That's very good. Um, well, I'm um, running out of time. It's five to five and my kids will start coming in here and uh, screaming. And there's only so long that I can rabbit on about stuff like this, <laughs> oh, admittedly. I don't, I don't know about that, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> she knows me too well. <laughs> Uh, it's good to talk to you. Um, again, if you're interested in a classic piece of Australian cinema, as Kane said before, I wouldn't. It's not something you would just watch, sit down and watch for an entertaining evening. But certainly, if you're into film um, and if you're familiar with Peter Weir's other films, then check it out for sure. Yeah, it's, it's like this is gonna be a weird comparison, but watching this movie is a bit like seeing an ant on the sidewalk. At first, there is just the one ant that you can see, but the more you look at it, the more you notice, okay, there's another one, there's another one, and before you know it, there's just, it's swarming all over the place. <laughs> That's what this film feels like, at least for me, because the more I watched it, the more I kept noticing little things that just kept adding up until it just exploded into, like, just art in my face everywhere. <laughs> That's not, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. All right. Well, um, I'll catch up with you um, in the next couple of days and talk about when we'll do the others. But for now, thanks for the chat. And for the record, I get the feeling that I'll be talking for even longer about the next two. Oh, but I'll leave that for you to figure out. Okay, no problem. <laughs>